Hello, everybody. Today, we have Doug Bouton on the podcast. Uh, very exciting episode and someone who I think a lot of you can learn uh, a lot from in this episode. Before we jump in, though, today's episode is brought to you by Elite Sweets. Elite Sweets is redefining the way we think about sweets with their Elite Donuts. The Elite Donut is a better-for-you donut that is packed with 13 grams of protein. They're gluten-free, keto-friendly, and only contain one gram of sugar. That's right, one gram of sugar. These donuts are truly the fix for those of you looking to keep your diet clean with a high-protein snack but love some of those delicious, delicious donuts that we all know ruins a good diet. Uh, so check them out. Uh, also, tomorrow, and this is going live on a Thursday, Friday. Um, so tomorrow, if you guys are listening to this as right as it comes out, is National Donut Day. Elite Sweets is running a 25% off deal on Amazon. So check them out. Uh, che- you know, for, for Donut Day, you got to get some Elite Sweets this year. Don't be going to Krispy Kreme, get any of that garbage. You got to get Elite Sweets. Head over there. The coupon, uh, the discount is live on Amazon this entire week through Sunday. So check them out. If you miss uh, the deal, if you listen to this after uh, the Donut Day deal is over, you can still go to EliteDonut.com or head over to Amazon and you can use code ShaneWhite30 for 30% off. So check them out. Big, big weekend for them uh, for National Donut Day. So check them out for Elite Sweets. Today's episode is also brought to you by Routine. When we sleep, we lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, most of that from sweating during our sleep. What most of us do is, you know, wake up and grab a cup of coffee uh, first thing in the morning, but what that tends to do is actually dehydrate you even more. Well, the guys over at Routine came up with a proprietary product called Morning Routine. Each single-serve packet of Morning Routine contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, and all six, all six essential electrolytes. But most importantly, no sugar. If you guys have you know tried a lot of the other hydration products on the market, many of them are filled with unnecessary sugar. Morning routine does not have any of that. Like I said, it comes in a single-serve pack. I honestly, every morning, just tear one of those open, dump it into around 20 ounces of water, and you're good to go. Routine, trusted ingredients, made convenient. Uh, if you want to check them out, you can go over to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. All right, folks, for both of those, for Routine and Elite Suites, the links are in the show notes as well. So if you missed them, you don't have to rewind. Just go to the show notes. Like I mentioned at the beginning, today's episode is with Doug Bowden. And what I didn't mention is Doug was one of the co-founders of Halo Top Ice Cream. So for any of you who are into ice cream, you've probably seen, tried, um, or, you know, definitely seen at least, uh, halo top ice cream in stores. They, you know, rose through the ranks, ended up becoming the top selling pint nationally, uh, for all ice cream, which is incredible. And Doug kind of goes through the entire journey from early beginnings of, of leaving his legal career to building a massive, massive business to a ton of the struggles that happened towards the end. Um, now Doug is into a new venture for Halo Top International, so he basically owns the international component of their business, uh, as well as starting basically uh, an incubator for the next generation of, of startup brands. So today's episode is a goldmine of knowledge, of information, and, and Doug, thank you for, if you listen to this, thank you for uh, you know opening up and, and sharing your story. It was awesome to learn more about Halo Top and, and how it came to be what we all know it is today. All right, folks, without further ado, give it up for Doug. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I'm stoked today to have Doug Bouton on the podcast. Doug, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Shane. Happy to be here. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Um, so first and foremost, I think, you know, you, you, first of all, we'll get into your background. Um, I usually like to introduce people and say like, oh, this is what, you know, the CEO of this, or they came from this, the founder of that, but you've obviously most well known for Halo Top for sure, but now you're getting into a lot of cool things. So I want to make sure I hit on all those, but for everyone listening who somehow doesn't know who you are, would you mind letting everyone know kind of your background and, and just like what you've started and created? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm Doug. Um, I'm the uh, the co-founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which if you don't know what it is, it's essentially healthy ice cream that tastes pretty good, um, which seems like those are a dime a dozen today. But we were kind of at the forefront uh, of that trend back in, you know, 2013-ish um, when we that was kind of our first full operational year. So, you know, did the Halo Top thing, was fortunate enough, and we can get into this if you like, but, you know, to take it through um, an exit uh, and then, have recently kind of spun out the international operations to focus on um, our international markets and then also relaunch some new brands in the US, which uh, nobody's ever heard of yet, but hopefully uh, in the coming years, people will. Definitely. No, definitely. And I, I love the new ones because you've kind of taken the same philosophy to the next one, I, at least from my perspective, um, yep. just, which is really cool. Um, and I thought it'd be cool to start off too, kind of even taking a step back. I thought it was interesting looking at your background. You're actually an attorney by like, school right like you got a you got a law degree and you were like a practicing attorney and even started your own firm is that correct got a law degree passed the bar uh, i worked for like a year at kind of a bigger law firm out in la um and then uh when we uh, or when i joined um halo top early on um i started my own uh, law firm which you know that sounds so much more official than it was i had a website i paid like 150 bucks a month for a virtual office and uh, I would take kind of like inbound work that came my way of like, can you form my LLC? Can you, you know, draft this contract, that kind of stuff. But just, okay. you know, you, you kind of need a side hustle in the early days because I couldn't pay bills and all the money was tied up in Halo Top and then some. So sure. Got about. it. Okay. So it was really, it was a, a bridge to hopefully making Halo Top the full-time thing. Exactly. And I was completely, you know, full-time at Halo Top, but it'd be like, you know, I don't know, about 60 hours a week on Halo Top, maybe, you know, 10 on the law firm or something like that. But um, it was strictly to make rent and stuff. Like we yeah. took, uh, <laughs> I think our salaries back in the day, we took 60,000 a year out. But in LA, especially in California, like that does not go very far. So I was going to um, say 60K in LA. That's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. 30K most places. <laughs> I was going to say less taxes and less rent. We could, you know, maybe go out to eat once a quarter and other than that, you're eating ramen noodles. In and out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. So you, uh, I guess, and I think it's really interesting. Like, so you, obviously you pass the bar. I mean, it's expensive to get a law degree. Um, you start practicing. I'm sure you were making pretty good money. How on earth did you go? And on this podcast, just to give you a little background, a lot of what I like to talk about is that zero to one, just like that magic sweet spot of just like how it happened. Yeah. How did you, like, how did you even get talked into helping grow and join Halo Top at the beginning? Like, that seems like such a hard sell. Yeah. Um, it, I, again, objectively it should have been, <laughs> it, it wasn't for me. So that, that story, I had $200,000 in student loan debt, uh, coming out of law school. So yeah, it's, it's expensive. Um, and in hindsight, I kind of always go back and forth about what I had gone to law school, if I could do it all over again. And I think, I think inevitably I would have just cause it really helped, uh, it helped me hone my critical thinking. It developed, a network of people who have money and can invest in startups, which I obviously tapped into when we were raising money for Halo Top. Um, and then just the, the practical skill of being able to draft contracts and stuff saved us tens of thousands, if not more early on, because I could just kind of do all the legal work for the business. But so for me, I was a lawyer for all of a year. I'm just maniacally uh, independent where like, I just, I need to have control of my own schedule. Um, yeah. So I kind of, I always knew that, I was just going to do my own thing. When I was going to law school, I, I actually, back in college, uh, I looked up a list of like the Fortune 500 CEOs and I noticed a ton of them had law degrees. So I always, I went to law school knowing that I wasn't going to practice law. Um, I still got caught up in it and ended up, you know, going and practicing for a year or so. But like, I never, I went to law school knowing I was going to get into business on, on some level. Um, and it just so happened for me. Uh, so I was quitting without, I didn't have Halo Top lined up. I didn't like quit for Halo Top. I actually just quit with no plan in mind. Oh, um, wow. I had, I think, 25K in my checking account. And that was it. That's all the money I had to my name. Um, so I had like six to nine months of kind of living expenses between rent and other things, car payment, all that kind of stuff, student loan payment. 
Um, but I, I was like, look, I, I'm just going to figure it out. Um, I, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't care what it's going to be, but I'm just going to go do my own thing. I was really, really fortunate uh, to have unbelievably supportive parents. Um, so mom and dad, uh, dad in particular practiced law as well. Then he was a judge and everything, but he told me, oh, wow. um, essentially, you know, once you pass the bar, that's a license to make money. You can charge people, uh, for your advice as a lawyer. And you're not taught that in law school. You're not taught that at big law firms. They teach you, you don't know how to practice law. You have to stay here for at least five years. Then you have to go in-house. Then maybe you come back and you hope you're a partner. You know, they're kind of all in bed with each other about, you know, how it's it like works. trying to, it's almost like a corporation, right? Like it's all just trying to keep people there. Exactly. It's, it's all a business and it's heavy at the top. It's not like the, the law firm partners are, are eager to make more partners and share the pie. So I just, I knew I was going to get out and I fortunately had my parents who, you know, they weren't the type of parents to say, what are you doing? You know, how are you going to make rent? How are you going to pay off your student loans? They said you should do it. Um, and oh, that's cool. Yeah. So Even it was awesome. as having like a dad who kind of went through the typical legal path. Yeah, no, that's why, like, I, again, I'm so fortunate that's, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who, who have a different experience. Um, their parents are like, how could you leave? You know, cause you get paid a ton to work at law firms. Like I was making, I was probably making 200 K a year. Um, and I was leaving that job with the 200,000 in student loan debt to essentially with no plan. Uh, but I met my now or my former, um, uh, business partner, the founder of Halo Top, Justin Wolverton, um, at, uh, he was at a different law firm. We met in a lawyer basketball league. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You can imagine what that was like. We were just friends for a couple of years though, out in LA. And it was actually at, you know, warm up, warming up for one of those basketball games where I told him, I was like, I'm out, I'm quitting. I'm done with this. And that's when he told me, he said, well, you know, if you're quitting, I kind of have this healthy ice cream concept that I've started in my home kitchen. I'm, I'm selling in some local stores in L.A., um, you know, and over the course of kind of three months, six months and towards the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, we he essentially asked me to come on to join full time and um, to help help him uh, help him grow the thing and launch it. And uh, that's yeah, that's kind of that's how wow. I joined. And then from there, it, 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 you know, there's all kinds of stories in the, the early days. Sure. Time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, thinking back even to that, like, so what you just kind of thought you'd figure it out. Like, did you have any, like any other aspirations at the time of like, you want to start your own business? Did you even know you wanted to get into food or like CPG in, in general? Like that's wild. Like I, it's, you don't hear very often of someone, you know, especially like what you just said, like you had a great paying job out the gate after law school uh, and to just quit and figure it out. Yeah, I can't, uh, it's hard. I've just, I've never, I've never cared about money. I've always, you know, wanted money, but only as a means to an end to kind of do the things that you want to do in life or, or to help your family and friends, et cetera, that kind of stuff. Um, but I've never been the type to like count how much money I have in my bank account. I could care that money's there to be spent on, on whatever, you know, you want to spend it on. So I, I've never, I never got tied into that. And I also never, if I, lost money, I get more money. Like I always kind of just had the, that hustle, I guess, of okay. you know, like, I'll figure it out. Um, so I, I never felt the pressure. I should have, again, objectively looking back, it was not a sound financial decision by any means, uh, especially at the time. But, but I think he and I, we really had the, you know, being an outsider as we both were, we were both attorneys with no experience in food and beverage. We, Shane, I'm not kidding. We literally Googled, you know, how to make ice cream ice cream manufacturer, Los Angeles. Like we didn't know what we were doing. Like we were, yeah. everything we did was as an outsider and that's both good and bad. The good is it let us kind of question conventional wisdom of like, you have to go to Expo West and do trade shows. And we started saying, why the hell are we doing this? It costs so much money. It takes so much time. Like, why don't we use that time and money to go fly around the country and just do sales media? I mean, stuff yeah, like yeah. that at the time was like really, really controversial and, and brokers and, and retailers were like, you can't, that that's a stupid decision, but we could, as an outsider, it was much easier to question that because we weren't kind of boxed into this way of thinking at the same time, we didn't know how hard it was going to be. So we naively thought this is the greatest idea ever. This is the best thing since sliced bread. And it's so embarrassing to think back on those thoughts back in like 2012, 2013. But, um, that's what we thought. I think we thought it was going to be easy and we were going to make millions and this is going to be great. And man, reality hit us square in the face within like, I don't know, the first few months. And you're like, oh, not only this might not work, but 99.99% of the time, this is not going to work. Like it's right. so hard 
you can have the best product in the world, the best brand in the world, the smartest, hardest workers, doesn't matter. Like it's just so hard uh, to, to break through in CPG uh, anywhere. Uh, well, probably in any business, but I think that that reality smacked us in the face. And had we known what we found out, it would have been so much harder to actually make that initial decision. I think it was because we were naive that it was really easy for us to be like, screw these high paying jobs. Like this is a better path for us. And again, it all's well that ends well, I guess it worked out, but <laughs> it, it was not a foregone conclusion. It was not destined to happen by any means. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, so when you, you guys start making this, it sounds like even from the beginning, like, which is, it's powerful to think for anyone listening who may want to start something like you guys believed in halo top. It sounds like from the get, um, whether you knew it was going to work or not, obviously you guys are trying to figure it out, but did you guys envision this becoming like a big national brand that would become like the number one ice cream pint in the country? Or did you think it was going to be like you guys just like slinging ice cream across California and making enough to, you know, make a good living. Did you guys kind of think through a lot of that early on? Yeah. I mean, we, I think you have to, because there are going to be so many dark days. So like, if you don't have a core belief in, in whatever product or service you're selling is truly differentiated, that people will go nuts for it, that they will pay for it. Um, you should stop and find something that you feel that way about, because you're going to need that. That's kind of like your guiding light when you start questioning everything. And every entrepreneur gets like this, where you, you're like, your insecurities come up and you're like, was I wrong? Like, is there not a market for this is, you know, everybody's always said ice cream is ice cream. That's indulgent. Like nobody would ever want healthy ice cream or low calorie ice cream. Maybe they were right. Maybe we were wrong. Like those thoughts, God, they start to creep up. Sure. I bet. Aren't working out. And when, you know, you're getting discontinued left and right and, and your customer retention is next to nothing. Like it's impossible not to have those negative thoughts kind of creep in. And you have to, I think, have that foundational belief that, um, what the reason you started this, the re that there is a big market for this. So we always were thinking big market. Now, I, in terms of outselling Ben and Jerry's and Hagen Nuz, where we ultimately got to that, we never conceived of that. But I, I think we definitely looked at like um, a skinny cow back in the 90s. And we're like, you know, we, we should be able to do that. Um, there was another brand that was, uh, it wasn't ice cream, but it was kind of in that like healthy dessert space that was, um, it was probably like a $20 million brand or so at the time. And we were like, we should be able, it's a better product. We should be able to do at least that. But I think that the limit, the, the, the heights we got to, we had never dreamed of those, but we absolutely were doing this to, you know, hopefully, you know, be a hundred million plus brand someday. I mean, that was definitely the goal and, and, um, and what we were trying to do. That's so cool. And what was, what were some of like the, you know, the beginning, the zero to one of, you know, you guys are like trying to figure out ice cream. Did you guys have like pretty early on, like what you thought the the makeup and like the selling point, like, do you know, like higher protein, lower calorie, like ice cream was that was that was kind of the angle that you guys were going after from the from the beginning? From the start? Absolutely. I think uh, we messed up on our packaging early on, though, and we ended up we rebranded this. And I think we launched the rebrand in like 2015 to the package everybody sees today. But um, we knew it was kind of low calorie, high protein, low sugar. Um, and we looked at what Greek yogurt had done to the yogurt category um, about oh. five years prior. That was kind of our comp to say yogurt was this category that was just completely stagnated um, and or completely stagnant. And, and look at what Greek yogurt did to that where they flipped. And so instead of being high sugar and no protein, it was high protein and low sugar. We thought ice cream was situated just like yogurt and we should be able to come in with a product that can do just that. Now it took us, again, three years of really painful uh, <laughs> consumer feedback and retailer feedback to reformulate the product pretty drastically um, to improve the taste and the texture and the consumer experience, but then to also rebrand so that the brand, you know, screamed, Hey, this is low calorie ice cream, which it was not, not doing for us in, in the early days. But that, that was always kind of the positioning of it. it I think we just, you know, we launched with uh, a product and a brand that, that didn't, tick those boxes as well as it could have. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks. And I never thought, I never realized the Greek yogurt was like the angle. That makes a ton of sense though. Did you guys, um, did you raise money out the gate? Was this just like self-funded for the most part for the first? I was just, just going to say, we, um, on, I just revisited, I don't even know why our early investor docs, uh, and it's a ridiculously long, uh, what's called PPM private placement memorandum. And it's this like 30 page single space legal document that my dumbass <laughs> thought like this is how you and now it's like 
No, you create like a 10 slide investor deck and you go and like it, you know, the legal side, you're like, I got this. It was, it was so stupid. And I can't imagine, fortunately, a lot of the investors were lawyers. So I think they appreciated like the, the denseness. Of the, uh... You do who your audience was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in that document, we, I've got a whole section in there where, you know, we talk about Greek yogurt, look at the numbers and what Greek yogurt did to yogurt. Now look at ice cream and what, you know, we could hopefully do to ice cream. I mean, that was absolutely how we positioned it and how we raised money. Um, but in terms of financing two rounds, uh, we did half a million in 2013. Uh, and then we did a million dollar round in 2015. And that was actually it for us. So we did one total 49 people on the cap table. It's all friends and family. Um, no real funds, nothing like that. Uh, all common equity. Um, there was like no, no voting rights. Um, there was a, a liquidation preference that just was one X, meaning everyone gets their money back before then it goes pro rata based on, on ownership. Um, minimum tax distribution because we're an LLC, but like there's a drag along right, a tag along right. These are things that uh, essentially let the majority sell the whole company or the minority can participate pro rata if the majority tries to sell. But that, it was a really basic raise and documents. And we were told this will probably interest you and, and your listeners. We were told early on, because we had done our projections um, and said, man, we shouldn't need venture money. We shouldn't need a series A, a series, like cash flow from operations should be able to fund growth if we can get to scale. So we would say that when everybody would ask us about dilution and you don't promise anything, but we were open. Like our goal is to not do a series A. Like we, we're just trying to oh, break yeah. until cash flow from operations can fund growth and man, we got laughed out of the room uh, multiple times. Like that can't be done. Uh, you guys are idiots. Uh, you have to do a series A. It's too expensive in retail with slotting and all this stuff to build a brand. Um, and then, I mean, we're, again, we were really fortunate that that was all we had to raise, but we, yeah, we never did a series A. Um, we never had a board of directors. Um, it was just myself and my partner, uh, Justin, running the thing. And that, I mean, that's why we were so nimble because we could just, you know, boom, you talk to one of us and decisions made and, and we're off and running. Um, wow. That's awesome. I mean, that's a very uncommon story to your point. Um, do you know, wow, that's wild. I'm like, I'm trying to think of, of anyone else I've talked to who has been through that. It's interesting too. I mean, you, so you raise 1.5. Yeah. So then I'm guessing your unit economics, each pint you're selling. I mean, you guys had must've had very healthy margins. So we were up, well, we started with negative gross margin. <laughs> it cost us more to make it than we could sell it for. But we, we did know we had kind of a, a co-man um, or a co-packer set up uh, that essentially gave us somewhere between a 30 to a 40% gross margin once we could hit their minimums. Okay. Um, and we got to there by 2013. We were starting to do runs with that one. I remember one of the first things I did for Halotop was I had to go rent a U-Haul go to the old co-packer, uh, you know, get all of our stuff uh, and, and bring it all to the new co-packer. And um, oh, wow. the old co-packer was, he was a hilarious guy, but he, he like caught me because I didn't really want to have a conversation, but he like caught me. <laughs> like sneaking ice cream stuff out. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, um, for us, so, and then from the 30 to 40% gross margin, we actually were able to uh, continue to hit like crazy good economies of scale. And we got, we were, we were probably north of 60% gross margin um, by, you know, 2015, 2016, for sure. Wow. And at that point, did you guys, had you started building a team yet? Or are you guys still pretty nimble as far as like headcount? Yeah, we were extremely nimble through, I'd say through at least the end of 2016. Um, we, it was just uh, myself, Justin, and my little brother, um, Raj or Ryan, uh, he graduated college and moved out to LA he was going to be an actor and do all that stuff. But okay. instead of waiting for tables, we were like, Hey, we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. Just come like, you know, essentially be our grunt and do grunt work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he'd do sample shipments. He would go do like in-store demos. And, you know, I mean, he was just kind of on the grind doing farmers markets and stuff like that in around. And then he also helped with the influencer and digital marketing that we, uh, we kicked off, but it was just three of us for until 2015 uh, when we brought on kind of our first, uh, hire who was uh, my best friend from growing up he came on to help us uh, run the sales team and then in 2016 we started to expand but you know I think we had we had less than we had six or seven people total by the end of 2016 um, wow by the time we sold we had about I think 125 employees give or take so and that would have been end of 2019 so we had our growth years were just kind of drinking from a fire hose on everything from 
sales to marketing to you know hiring hr like all the stuff we didn't really have in place uh, and you're just trying to to rush to put in place yeah no i mean you're trying you're, you're growing faster you can keep up with that makes a ton of sense very similar to the rx story for sure is um i think it was interesting too, to take one more step back you, you're just saying you went and picked up product to go from one command to the other for you guys early on like i that's something i wanted to ask was I, I, I don't even, where would you start with like an ice cream co-man? Like obviously a lot of co-mans are dealing with like a lot of big brands, I would assume. Um, I don't know a ton of like real smaller, like at the time, smaller ice cream companies. So like for people listening, it's a question I've gotten a lot is like, where did you even start? Is it again, was it like a Google exercise? You're like, like who can help me make ice cream type of thing? And like, how do you figure that out? I kid you not for the one that we were with uh, early on. Uh, so Justin, my partner or former uh, business partner um, before we sold was uh, he Googled how to make ice cream Los Angeles or Los Angeles ice cream manufacturing. He got a list of about 10. And just like it was out of a movie, this is not made up. He, the first nine said, no, we don't, we have no interest. And the 10th one was like, sure, kid, come on in here and, you know, see what happens. And, and, uh, wow. you know, that first run, and Shane, we blew the pipes, that thing, like the pressure gauges were going nuts. Bolts started flying off everywhere. Pipes burst. Uh, at the co-man. At the co-man. So we were like, all right, this is done. They're going to kick us out. Um, but that co-man was just like, you know, it was just like, hey, this is manufacturing. This happens. You know, the mix is too thick. Here's what we should do to thin out the mix so it can run through the machines. Let's try again tomorrow. And we're like, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Oh, sure. <laughs> like we, didn't, we were panicking. We were like, oh, sorry about your equipment. Yeah, your equipment's uh, all destroyed. <laughs> but they were uh, they were cool. We still work with them uh, to this day. And, and, and I've got a ton of loyalty uh, to them. As we scaled, we obviously had to add more. And it's a small industry, manufacturing, food manufacturing is. But there's probably, I don't know, 25 or so ice cream manufacturers in the U.S. of which you know, 10 or 15, you probably would be okay making your product in there. The other 10, okay. you to avoid. Um, and we ended up at one point, we actually were making product in somewhere between eight to 10 facilities, but um, we wow. consolidated down to about two or three um, at, after the scale. And I'm sure that when you were moving to that process, that was I probably took a lot of time, I would assume. Just like, I, I can only imagine like going to a co-man and getting that working and, and that had to be like your full-time job for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there weren't enough hours in the day because you have to, a lot of it's relationship based too, um, especially with co-mans where, you know, it's a blue collar industry, it's manufacturing. So, you know, they like seeing people and shaking hands and, and, you know, being there in person is important. It's not something that you can, you know, sit in LA and be like, Hey, go do this. Here's the formula. Thanks. Um, you really have to kind of invest the time in, in developing that relationship too. So not to mention the technical side of then you have to source ingredients everybody has slightly different machines or proceed you know you kind of have to tweak the formula here and there to to make sure it, it works um, at each command i was gonna say were you pretty involved in you know the r d in the beginning was that was that more was that in your realm or your partner's realm it started in my partner's realm and then kind of moved to my realm um uh later on when when he was focused more on marketing at that point but um yeah so he it, it absolutely started 100 in his realm and then kind of transitioned um as I took over supply chain and, and part of the supply chain was obviously the R and D. Yeah. Got it. And then as you guys are like, you know, you're getting up to scale, what were some of the, like the big early retail locations that you guys got into and, and really started to make a, a splash in the market? So our first big, or for us, especially at the time, our first big one was Sprouts. Um, and this was back in 2013 when Sprouts was still kind of an upstart. I think Apollo still owned it. Uh, Apollo might still own it. I don't know who owns it these days. Um, but, uh, or maybe it's, yeah, I don't know who owns it. Um, but that was our first one. Uh, and then they unfortunately discontinued us in like 2014 or 15. Oh, then, really? So that's a smack in the face, I'm sure. Like yeah. that was tough. We lost more than half of our store count there. Um, Sprouts got rid of us. Gelson's in LA discontinued us. Bristol Farms in LA discontinued us. We went from, you know, I don't know, eight, six, seven, eight hundred stores down to like, you know, three, four hundred, something like that. Um, Oh, so wow. yeah, I mean, it was really ebbs and flows there. What were some of the, re like, what was, what was the key reason to getting, starting to get discontinued? Cause I, I can only imagine for being in your shoes, like you get all this retail distribution, you guys are growing and all of a sudden you start going backwards. Like that's gotta be a pretty pivotal moment for the business. It's tough. Uh, and again, those are dark, 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 dark days like that. That's kind of what I was alluding to when you get, when you work as hard as you have to work, uh, at, at something you care so much about, cause it is your baby. Um, 
man, when, when, when the bad news starts coming, it, it is, it's such a hard thing to sit with, to swallow and, and to push through, um, as opposed to just say, look, I, I just got to give up, move on, do something else. But, um, yeah, for, I mean, the reason was simple. We, we didn't sell well enough. The, the velocities, the, you know, units per store per week weren't anywhere near where it needed to be. Um, a, a host of reasons for that. Again, you know, probably didn't do enough on marketing, uh, but most importantly, the product wasn't good enough. So even if we brought a, cons- a new consumer to the brand, they wouldn't buy it again because uh, oh. they, you know, nine out of 10 of them would have a bad experience, chalky, icy, uh, stuff like that, which again, going through the frozen supply chain, it's just tough. So that's the reformulation that I, I talked about earlier. We did that in 2015 um, and that rolled out to stores uh, and that slowly started to help our retention where it was a much better consumer experience. It was creamy. It did perform like ice cream. There weren't like all these qualifiers that you have to say, hey, it's it fine. It might be a little chalky, but it's only 300 calories. You know, I, I hate the quality, like consumers won't compromise on taste. Like they, they just won't. Um, yeah. Not that much at least. What um, was that process like? Like doing a reformulation? Was that, did you lead that? Did you guys like get help externally to try to get help in some of those areas? How did you go about thinking through that? Yeah, we actually, we worked with uh, Cal Poly SLO in, in San Luis Obispo. Um, they have a whole dairy science department. Um, and, and worked with a dairy scientist who I don't think he's there anymore, but his name was Dr. Tong. Um, and uh, again, my partner, he spent, Justin went up there and I think he spent at least a month wow. um, iterating, you know, it had to be hundreds of iterations um, of the formula. But back in the day we used, uh, I, we don't use it anymore. So I can say we used cottage cheese as one of our like secret ingredients uh, that we thought uh, would be great, but it wasn't scalable. Um, it, it, nobody used it in ice cream, so they didn't make it in big enough quantities and the format that co-packers would need. We literally were like opening like two pound containers of it by hand and dumping it into this, you know, 2000 gallon batch of ice cream. Mix. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Back in the day. So, but, and then the stability of the product, again, through that frozen supply chain, as it, you know, inevitably heats up and then melts down and then refreezes like we needed to make it functionally uh just more stable uh so that it didn't you know shrink and have ice and you know again just end up with a bad consumer experience because again right off of the production line it was great but that's not what a consumer has um so you have to kind of uh, improve the stability there so it was mostly mostly a reformulation to kind of have scalable ingredients and then to really have something that was stable through the supply chain Got it. Okay. So you guys reformulate, you get a stable product. Is it then kind of like all out, just like, how can we get this into more places and get it back? Did you have to like, and how was it like going back to some of those places that you lost distribution and did you try to get new meetings? I've never talked to anyone who's gone through the process of like trying to resell a product in. Uh, It's nearly impossible. And we did not do that successfully. So we, um, Uh, We tried, but so, you know, I was kind of pounding the pavement on sales and I was probably doing, I don't know, 50, at least probably 50 meetings a year, um, always in Q4. So just living on the road, you know, East coast, West coast, Midwest, you know, South pack Northwest, where just literally flying around the country. I feel like I've seen every state you can imagine at this point (laughs) as a retailer headquarters. And, um, it was just pounding the pavement, but it it's so hard because by 2015, we'd been around long enough where they said, well, how are you doing? What are your sales like? Show me, you know, and so you have to explain away why your sales are bad and why they should trust you to launch you. Um, and anybody like Sprouts, Gelson's and Bristol Farms have discontinued us. We would meet with them. Uh, sometimes they wouldn't even take a meeting. And if they took a meeting, they would be like, why would we do this again? Um, and we, for the longest time, we're not in Bristol or Gelson's. I don't know if we are anymore. They still may not have taken us back. I know for a fact. Which is probably hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we tried for years, even once we were big and we didn't need Sprouts at all, we still tried to get in there just because it was like my point of pride to be like, get back in Sprouts. Yeah, <laughs> so, I bet. Um, but yeah, it, it was, uh, it, it's nearly impossible. The good thing for us, both on a consumer and a retailer standpoint, is it wasn't like, we were everywhere with massive brand awareness. So it became much easier uh, in terms of time and money to focus on retailers who had never launched us or consumers who had never heard of us rather than try to win back a consumer who had a bad experience or a retailer who discontinued us. That just, 
that that wasn't an efficient use of time or resources for us. So we we just said, hey, let's just start fresh. It's a new brand, anyways. No one's going to really recognize kind of the old the old brand. So let's just treat this like it's kind of a brand new product and brand, and and not huh. not have to explain away all the bad from the prior years. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And when you guys did that, I mean, obviously the flavor changed, the like consistency, I'm sure changed. Did like pricing change? Did you guys do anything different with that, or did you kind of try to roll out? exactly where you were from a unit economic wise we stayed where we were on pricing uh there we actually got our pricing pressure came after we had hit it big uh when all of the competition entered so when all of the big players the unilevers the nestles the and, and all the small players there was i think more than 25 uh brands at one point in this kind of healthy ice cream space which was oh too wow much. um but that that's when we felt a lot of pricing pressure and in hindsight honestly made some bad decisions about how and when to reduce our price. Um, but that we didn't face any at the time because, you know, we weren't, we were $5.99 a pint at Whole Foods and like $4.99 a pint at like your Ralph's or Kroger's of the world. Um, so it wasn't, it was premium, but not like prohibitively expensive. So we just kept it there. Um, and our margins more or less stayed the same The you know, cottage cheese was one of the most expensive ingredients. So getting rid of that actually helped us um, from a cost standpoint too. Got it. Oh yeah. That totally makes sense. And then when, at this point, like growing retail distribution, I would assume for ice cream, I mean, that's the key driver to growth. Were you guys able, did you, at that time, were you doing any like D to C? Did you have a website? I know Amazon would be a tough one because of the frozen. Were you guys in any of that e-com world yet? Uh, we did start, um, we did have uh, a website uh, for a period of time. We did Amazon and then we would do like, um, like fresh direct out in New York and stuff. Uh, sure. But it, it was always a fraction of frozen and fresh, I think are always not going to be big categories for D2C, at least not in the near term here, next five years, 10 years. Um, it, it's just cost prohibitive on the shipping. You have to ship a dry ice. Uh, it weighs a ton. And then, you know, who wants to pay, you know, $15 for a pint of ice cream. It just doesn't make, and you have to buy 10 of them. You know, it's, it, it yeah. just doesn't make that much sense. So I, I, it was, we, we kicked ourselves so many times that like the running joke was like, we should have, we should have made a granola bar or RX bar. Like we, <laughs> we were so jealous of, you know, brands that could have like a real due to see business, but no, we, we had to focus on retail for the most part. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the unit economics and just how heavy and cold shipping i'm sure that was atrocious from like a, a business a PL perspective that's really wild so what i mean what you know it sounds like there was lots of challenges what do you re remember in those times the like 2013 to 2016 maybe 17 what were some of, what was like the biggest surprise do you that you can like look back on and be like wow that's something i didn't see coming or i learned the most from um i probably so sitting here today knowing what i know now i i am so nostalgic for those early years when like nothing was going right, when we had to suspend our salaries like quarter to quarter because we couldn't make, pay ourselves the, the 60K we were paying ourselves. Um, when all of our money is tied up in the business, when both of us are personally bankrupt with credit card debt and predatory lender debt and student loan debt and everything. Wow. Um, those were the best times at the company. And, and I, I mean that genuinely. Um, it's not like me romanticizing it because I know how unbelievably hard and stressful it was, but man, do I miss those days. I think it was, that's, so sitting here today, that's what surprises me the most is how much I yearn for. And probably that's why I've, I've tried to get back into it, at least on some level with, with these new brands that we can talk about. But um, I, I yearn for, for those early days, the, the intimacy of it, the, the hustle of it, the grind of it. Um, you know, I just, I love entrepreneurship and I, I love, that's what I love about it. I, I did not enjoy at all, um, you know, dealing with everything that comes when you become, you know, this hundred million dollar plus brand and you have a hundred plus employees and, and everything that comes with that. I, I really like the kind of intimacy and the personal connection you can have when there's only five of you, 10 of you, maybe 20 of you like that, that to me is that's the environment that I just like the most and, and, um, and trying to, recreate and then keep um with with the the new venture that we're doing here um in terms of business surprise again i the biggest surprise for us was that it didn't take off immediately that was just a wake up of like oh 
we're wrong. Like this is going to be hard as hell and this is not guaranteed to succeed. And again, 99.99% of the time won't succeed. Um, And then it's impossible not to, to remember when we finally did after three or four years, hit it big, the, those first three or four months when that, that started to happen and every day or every week, there was massive, massive, massive news or like we would do in a week, what we did in sales last year, like as that stuff started to happen, especially the early time of it, when it was still just a few of us, that was such a cool time to just be like, is this real? Is this happening? Can can we pay ourselves 80,000 a year now instead of 60? Like, I don't know. Let's not do that yet. Like who knows if this is actually going to last. And that would have been like early 2016, like kind of Q1, Q2 of 2016, as that was going on man was that, that that was just so fun to 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 be on the front end of that and then um so yeah i don't know if that answered your question no it does you know it's funny that it sounds very similar and i i came into rx you know at the very end when they were about to you know be be acquired but it's funny how when i talk to entrepreneurs and they think back to those times like when you start working you know maybe at a bigger company or whatever you think about like years but when yeah. you're at a startup you can like legit remember like months and quarters yeah. of a specific year and like what happened like it's like it's funny it's very yeah. very i hear it from a lot of people that are yeah. went through what you're talking about it's like you like know q1 of 2017 like what that felt like and it's it's funny it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't done it yeah yeah, yeah but that, that's kind of a yeah when i look back those are those are probably the two surprises because it was a complete shock to us but then it, just in terms of what I miss the most, it, it's absolutely those those early years when um, the stakes are the highest, but it, it's also the most fun. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm sure it sounds like it. So then you know, fast forward a little bit. It's it's interesting because you guys are experiencing crazy growth. Was it then? Did it start crossing your guys' mind like maybe we should think about selling this? Uh, I don't know if it's you know, is it to maybe pay your friends and family back who invested in you? Like, what are some of the like? what were some of the conversations that you guys had of like why you wanted to sell versus like, just keep it a small you know team and keep growing it and making lots of money. Like what were kind of those conversations like? Yeah. I think from a day one, we wanted to sell. Um, I, I don't, we never got into it saying, Hey, 40 years from now, we want to be Ben and Jerry. Like we didn't want to be Ben and okay. Jerry. Yeah. Um, good, good analogy. We, we wanted to create a company that we sold, um, you know, hopefully within kind of that five to seven year timeline. Um, give or take. And so as, as we started to become successful and then started to have an opportunity to consider selling, we considered everything. Uh, we considered uh, staying private, like uh, I think five hour energy is, or at least was, um, and just doing distributions every year. We considered doing um, what's called a leverage recap where you take out debt and you basically pay yourselves and investors a dividend. Mm-hmm. Um, we considered a partial sale. We considered a wholesale. Um, and, we, the hardest part for us in our sales process was we went from 2 million in 2015, this is gross revenue, um, not even net, but it was like 2 million in 2015 to 315 million in 2017 um, in two years. So, and I think it was somewhere around 50 million in 2016. So it's just a crazy, crazy curve. But then all the competition enters. So then you start to lose shell space. You start to lose market share. And as you go down, as we did from, you know, 300 to 250 um, to even, I think we ended up around 200, still a ton of revenue and a ton of money. That's a harder story to sell than if you went, I think our exit story is more linear um, and which is a very positive thing to be. Um, If we had gone from 50 to hundred to 200 to 300, I I mean, sky's the limit with what we could have done there, but because we, we spiked and then we're dealing with year over year declines, um, th- that was a, a harder sales story for us and, and really made the process uh, tough and trying to sell in 2017 when, when we were going on that thing, that was almost impossible because people wanted to pay us based on 2016 numbers, which we knew like we actually got an offer, a verbal offer at the time uh, from Unilever. They would never put it in writing because we won't get into that. Um, but uh, <laughs> Well, we got a verbal offer from Unilever for $50 million for the whole company, five zero. And we were like, what do you, how, what? Like, how does that make any sense? Like we, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, right. that's not a multiple, that's a fraction. Like what, yeah. <laughs> what's going on? Um, 
And so needless to say, we, we walked out of the room there and didn't, didn't do that deal. And that was more or less the last time we engaged with, with Unilever. But um, that, that was hard for us to, to find a way to liquidity because until we sold in 2019, we really hadn't taken out material money um, of the business. And uh, I'm not saying we, I mean, look, I had paid off my student loans at that point, um, but I still had a mortgage on my house. I, you know, there was still, yeah. there were still real stakes for us. Um, and we needed a liquidity event to, uh, you know, obviously for our investors and for ourselves there. So we, um, that was still a really, that was the most stressful and the least fun time. Uh, wow, really? But yeah, 20, 28, well, particularly 2019, towards the end of 2018 and 2019, um, I, it, it broke me. I mean, I, I was a, a fraction away from having a full-on mental breakdown. Like I, oh, wow. I, was, I was really done by the end. And, and again, just so fortunate to find, you know, an exit that, that worked out uh, well enough for everybody. And then, you know, has given me time to kind of say, how do I never get in that position again? Um, where, you know, the stakes are that high and, and I'm, you know, I I don't know, it's just hard to explain when you you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders from investors, employees on your personal situation, your family, um, your friend, my brothers were in the company. My best friend was in the company. You know, I mean, there's, everything's tied to it. And, and if it, if there is no exit, uh, not only is the company bankrupt, but I'm personally bankrupt and everything that comes with that, it's, you know. I kick myself for letting myself get into that session. You shouldn't be in that situation. And that's, that's what I was kind of staring down the gun of. Got it. No. Yeah. It makes sense. It sounds tough, man. I mean, that's, it's, it's crazy in such a short amount of time, what sounds like you had so, so many highs and so many lows. Um, and ultimately you're here today with a wild story. Um, I mean, it ended though. You guys, you guys did find an exit. What, what was, I don't know if you, if it's all public, but are, did you, was the final exit deal made public? Um, they not allowed us to disclose the terms, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm assuming my confidentiality runs forever, but I haven't looked at yeah. the legal box, but, um, <laughs> I, what I can say, I can, you know, who we sold to and all that's public. Sure. So we ended up selling to, uh, Wells Enterprises, uh, they're the third biggest ice cream company or of brands at the time um, behind Unilever and Nestle, although Nestle, I think, is now Frenary. Um, and they own brands like Blue Bunny. Um, I think they might own, no, I don't know if they own Friendlies, um, but they own Blue Bunny, like Bomb Pop. You remember like the red, white, and blue? Pop? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How could you not? You know, yeah, they own some like really iconic ice cream brands. Yeah. So they own, yeah, exactly. Those kind of like brands from your childhood or from like, you know, grandma's picnic or that kind of stuff. Um, so I think they were looking for, you know, a brand that kind of, uh, appealed to a younger demographic and, and would be really incremental, um, to their business. So I think it made a lot of sense for them, uh, to do it. What, what happened was, and it wasn't the deal we sought, but it was the deal that came was, um, they didn't have an interest in the international business. And at the time, again, we probably did I don't know, it was 20 or 30 million in sales, something like that. It wasn't crazy big, but it all, it, like it was, there was something there. Um, this was international at the time. This is the international business at the time. And they didn't want it um, and definitely didn't value it. And if anything, probably valued it as a negative where it would cost them money to shut it down. So I kind of raised my hand and was like, well, if you don't want it, I would love, I, you know, I feel so attached to this brand and this product and this company. Like, I would love to spend that out and, you know, let, let me have it. I'll license it from you and, you know, pay your royalty and all that stuff. Um, and at the same time, my, again, former partner was kind of, you know, ready to, to, to stop altogether. So I was able to kind of negotiate a, a, a buyout with him and, and um, a licensing deal with Wells that oh, wow. you know, spun out the international operations into a new entity. So they, the consumers don't know this, but the, the international business, and so they have U.S. and Canada, I should say. We have everything outside of U.S. and Canada, but the the U.S. and Canadian business uh, and everything outside of that are just they're run essentially in parallel by two separate companies. That you know, yes, there's a licensing agreement, but it's not like you know they don't talk to me and tell me what they're doing and vice versa. You know, we kind of just do our own thing and and um, you know have a good relationship. It's it's just arm's length uh, like that. Oh wow! So I mean, even like flavors and stuff like you you can you control completely on your own and they do their own like they're not there's wow exactly cool 
like we we kind of we can do everything we want in food and beverage for the most part and they obviously they bought it they can do everything they want within food and beverage too so yeah, yeah. does that even include like innovation like you could innovate and do a different category if you wanted to through that and everything else two restrictions uh yeah can't, can't do alcohol and can't do weed so okay. outside, of alcohol, <laughs> outside of alcohol and weed we can do anything we want though yeah. they had to draw the line somewhere exactly i said you know what fine i'm not gonna that's not a mountain I'm going to die on. So. <laughs> Doug had this idea for weed infused yeah. ice cream. I know it. CBD ice cream, you know? It, yeah. Hey, it, you know, crazier things have happened. No, that's wild. So in, for you, I mean, now hearing your story, was there any hesitation there? I mean, it sounds like you were pumped about kind of taking the reins on the international side of things, but going through all that tough time and end of 2018 and 2019, was that, was there something just like, you felt like it was a fresh start focusing on the interna international side or was there any hesitation at all? Just something like, do I really want to do this? Um, yeah, I'm getting actually just goosebumps thinking about it. Just kind of getting back in that headspace. The, um, I can't even, it's really hard for me to articulate how broken I was. Like, I, I'm not just saying that. Like I was like, I feel like I have pretty strong mental fortitude. Like everyone has a breaking point and I, I was probably two years past mine at that point. Like I needed to get out and I needed to do my own thing. I was, I had, I've never told anybody this. I, if that deal didn't go through, I was quitting. I was just going to walk away from the whole thing. Um, oh, wow. I was, I was done. Um, I, I, I can't emphasize enough how done I was. I, I needed to, I needed to go. Um, uh, but again, fortunately we got the deal and there was definitely, I think, Number one, there's just adrenaline. There was so much adrenaline coursing through my veins on a, I'm talking like from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, to go to bed, it's just like adrenaline is getting me through the days to, you know, when you go through a deal process, you, we started in like May with materials. We reached out to 50 strategics. We did eight meetings in June. We got um, a number of bids from there. And then you, you um, then, you know, of the people who bid, they go through diligence, they submit their final bids. Uh, you know, you, you negotiate um, and just keep I'm sure going. it's all encompassing. I'm sure that's just like you're all day, every day and night, weekends, it's everything. And every deal can fall apart at any time. So like there's no, the money's not in your bank account. So it's still all just paper. Um, and, and it's just so stressful. So I had a lot of adrenaline that probably, you know, felt like excitement. Uh, in hindsight, it was just adrenaline. Um, but I was able to spend the fourth quarter of 2019. So the deal closed on September 27th, 2019. And closing is where we had already signed and announced, but closing is where the money hits your bank accounts. That's where, that is the day I exhaled. And I said, holy shit, I, like we actually made it. I'm through this hell. Yeah. Um, what am I going to do uh, now? <laughs> Essentially with, right, yeah. with, with what's next. And, and um, I basically with, uh, again, my best friend, who's also named Justin, um, and my older brother, uh, Matt, who joined us really early on with this Halo Top International thing, we, we really spent the fourth quarter, um, you know, just taking deep breaths and saying, all right, what do we do with the international business? What do we do with payroll? What do we do with systems? What do we do with supply chain? Like you're, you're kind well, of so all of that. I mean, yeah, everything was just totally on you to figure we it had out to stand on our own. And you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, we had to capitalize the company on our own. We had to do all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it very much was like the early, it still is like the early days of a startup. Um, we're just fortunate to have capital. Um, so we don't have the stress of, you know, the money running out and, and having to raise money and do another round, which is the the worst part of, of, of entrepreneurship, but it definitely sure. took me, it wasn't until well into 2020 where it was probably six months after that. So we're probably talking like March, April of 2020, where I think I talked to my wife and I said, man, I think, I think I'm having fun again. Like, I, I think like I'm slow. I'm like, I think I'm getting back to, you know, why I ever did this shit in the first place. And, and oh, awesome. It, it just felt like, PTSD on some level where like you just man when you're in the the thick of that with, with some of the pressures that that you as a as a founder or, or an entrepreneur can feel is whew, it's tough yeah man I can only I can only imagine and I appreciate you even open up and, and telling all the audience the, the story um I'm happy to see that you are feel like you're on on back into the startup mode and you, you seem like you're excited like you definitely seem like when you talk about the international stuff you kind of like like pep up and you get excited, which is, which is yeah. really fun. I mean, that's good to see. 
I'm feeling great now. Like now, again, now we're almost two years from, actually, I guess we're a little more than two years removed. So yeah, now I'm, I'm in such a better space, but it's one of those things where like, I know how and why I got into it. It wasn't any one thing. It was years and years and years of a ton of stuff um, that just built up, built up, built up. And again, I, I really felt like the buck stopped with me and, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown and it's lonely at the top. Like I didn't have, I didn't have any outlets. I didn't let anybody in. I didn't have any support. There wasn't anybody I felt I could talk to because I I didn't, I I hadn't even like invested in a a network of other, you know, kind of CEOs, presidents, founders, et cetera. Um, And I certainly hadn't let in kind of the people closest to me in a way that I should have so that they could know what the hell's going on. Um, But again, hindsight's 2020. Now I'm never going to let let that happen again. But on the business side, it's so it's myself, it's 20 of us total in the US. Um, and again, 20 for me is like the ideal team. Everybody knows each other on a personal level, you know, their families, you know, what they're going through, you know, like, it's just so much more personal, so much more intimate. And um, it's what I, I thrive in that environment. Like I, I love team sports. Um, but I wouldn't, I don't like a team of 100 or 1000 people. Like I like a team where I know my teammates. Uh, personally. Yeah that's that's the coolest part for me right now now we we still you know need to continue to build businesses and brands but um so tbd on that front but um sure. in terms of the team i feel so so confident and and so happy with with what we put in place here that's awesome that's awesome yeah i mean it sounds exciting you got the international piece and then the other thing i want to hit on quickly i know we're we're getting to the top of the hour is the you you're launching a, you launched a whole like nether business and i don't know if it's is it, i don't know if it's underneath or it's connected or if it's totally separate but dojo brands is what it's called right and underneath that you launched a brand called gatsby chocolate yeah so essentially so it's a wholly owned subsidiary so it all just rolls up to the same uh, entity which is called halo top international but um basically what we did was especially when the global pandemic hit it became increasingly harder to directly manage an international business. So we very actively tried to find the right partners in market, whether they be distributors or like sub licensees, you know, who we could contract with where they could deal with uh, essentially the operation, the day-to-day operations of the brand Ah. market. Um, You know, we still are essentially kind of like, the parent or the licensor in those arrangements, we still are obviously actively uh, involved on some things, including like, you know, innovation and, and helping with that. But for the most part, the day to day will be managed in market, which frees up a lot of our time. And it allowed us to say, well, what do we want to do with that time? I always wanted to get back into it in the US market, which, you know, we have non-competes and whatnot. And when you when you sell a company, but that was that was limited to essentially ice cream. Uh, so we looked at other categories and are looking at others still, but the first one we looked at was, was chocolate. And we said, you know, while there are some low sugar chocolates out there, like a Lily's, uh, there's nothing that's actually low calorie. Um, oh. So what, what if we create kind of the first ever low calorie chocolate, it'll be low sugar too. Cause that's one of the prongs you pull to make it low calorie. Um, but can we do it in a way where, you know, the taste and the texture are great. Cause that's always paramount. Um, for us, I don't I think you're going to cap yourselves with not. And that essentially that launched um, in earnest, I'll say in October. So not too long ago, we, it was supposed to launch kind of in like uh, June-ish, but then resets kind of got delayed. We turned off our marketing and our launch stuff. So it's kind of like a soft launch right now. And I, I would say January one, we're going to kind of have a, already a rebrand and a reformulation. It's kind of like, the, Oh, wow. The, really? Yeah. It's like the Halo top story. Uh, instead of three years that we did it in three months. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we, we feel really, really good. I think about 2022 and, and uh, again, taking all the lessons learned from Halo Top, we, we, we feel like no guarantees, but you know, hopefully we can give this thing the best chance of success and, and see what happens. Definitely. No. And I, and I can vouch. I have my, your team sent me some, I have my hands on some, it's delicious. Oh. It is great chocolate. I was thoroughly impressed. I was like this, you know, you never know, you never know, but I, I can definitely, I can see the like connection from what you guys did at Halo Top into yeah. the chocolate. I definitely felt that right away when I tried it. We, we don't own the Halo Top brand in the US, so I uh, could not use the Halo Top brand. So that's, you know, but I figured yeah. it'd be fun. let's create a new brand. And I, I'd forgotten, I'd really forgotten how freaking hard it is. Like, again, I stupidly, again, cocky, arrogant, or just naive. I don't know, probably all of the above, but like, again, thought like, oh, it'll be easier this time around. 
because of the halo. And again, in some ways it is, but in other ways, it's like, especially when it comes to building a brand and like getting the brand awareness and consumers buying your product. Whew, it is, it is hard. Uh, there's nothing easy about it. Yeah, no, I bet. I mean, it's, you know, it, it probably is something that it's like striking gold twice sort of, sort of exercise a little bit. It, did, yeah. it is your plan then. So it seems like you want to go after multiple categories and hopefully launch additional brands. That, yeah, I think, um, so we're partnering with some other brands right now, um, you know, sales agency, creative agency, marketing agency kind of stuff. Again, we're very selective with that because our credibility is our currency. We don't want to rep something that we're, that we wouldn't do or sell ourselves. So I think between what I'd call our partner brands, we actually just launched a sibling brands program, which is really focused on like minority owned or women owned businesses. Can we bring oh, them cool. and essentially save them money, save them time and, and provide kind of our expertise in various areas. So between our own brands, the partner brands and the sibling brands, we feel like, you know, hopefully over the course of the next, you know, three, five, 10 years, we can really start to develop a, a portfolio that's cool that plays in a bunch of different categories with a bunch of different brands. And um, again, I think for us, I try not every entrepreneur, again, I think struggles with the 10 year vision and the next week vision. So sure. it's kind of, oh, yeah, it's a hard you, you got, you got to do the blocking and the tackling and the day to day. Um, and for us right now, again, that's, that that's Gatsby and, and a couple other of our kind of inaugural sibling brand and partner brand that we have going on. But um, again, I hope that the aspiration certainly um, is to, to kind of have a portfolio that, you know, there should be so many different synergies across that where you can, you know, start to play like the big boys play because they, they don't play fair and they can play that way because of the leverage they have with the brands they have and the retailers. So, you know, could we, on a smaller scale, little by little, can we start to build something like that? I think that'd be, that'd be fun. Awesome. It sounds fun. And yeah, so, that, so that's really cool. So, so launching brands as well as really bringing, is it like basically bringing some of the operations, the market, like, is it some of the like functional areas into Halo Top International to help these younger, whether it's minority owned or other types of brands, help them kind of scale? Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of like, Hey, we, if you want the Halo Top playbook, it doesn't guarantee success, but again, we, this is the playbook we continue to use for Halo Top and, and Gatsby and any of our other own brands. We, we can give you the whole playbook as well. And again, it's, like I said, I, I, we, I haven't, we haven't developed the business on this front. It's kind of all like inbound and, and we, we are, I can't emphasize how selective we are. We just don't have the time right now to represent 10 brands. There's only 20 of you and you're doing international yeah. gats. Yeah. There's a lot going yeah. on. <laughs> um, so we're kind of, you know, we're testing that out right now. And hopefully if, if kind of we can prove that our, some of our theories work and, and that we can really, that we know how to build a brand in a, a both cost and time efficient way that, that we can essentially share that with, with these other partner brands that we bring into the mix. That that's definitely the idea. Love it. Love it. Well, well, Doug, this is this has been awesome. The last two questions I love to ask every founder that comes on here. The first one, real quick, is just, you know, you're obviously doing a million different things, and I can only imagine what your calendar and everything looks like. What do you use day to day, and then that ten year vision you're talking about to plan goals and really just to get shit done? Are you an app guy? Are you a pen and paper guy? Like, what do you use? Yeah, um, my calendar, uh, my Google Calendar, I, I live and die by in terms of organization. Um, I would say I don't, well, I think 10 years out, I don't plan 10 years out, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I can't imagine I, the question, where, where do you see yourself in five years? Hell if I know. Um, <laughs> I can tell you where I see myself in five weeks. Um, so I kind of, I kind of plan towards the near term and then, cause you never know what facts and circumstances are going to change. And I just like make, you make the best decisions you can with the information in front of you at the time. So, um, I, we, I probably go about a year out in terms of like, here's a strategy that we're going to execute on. We're not going to review this daily or weekly or even monthly. We'll probably take a look quarterly to see if something needs to adjust. And then once a year, we'll, we'll really take a look and say, all right, what happened? What worked? What didn't? What should we change? Um, but I'd say it's probably an annual exercise for me on that front. But again, I, I know where I want to be in 10 years. I'm just not going to plan for that. And we'll, we'll kind of see where, see where I end up. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I love it. Kind of a long-term vision, but like day-to-day, you're really heads down blocking and tackling, as you said, I love that. Um, what would you suggest to the audience? Question number two of um, source of knowledge. So whether podcast, a book, what's something that's been impactful to you that other people listening could, could learn from? It's a great question. I consume so much content. Um, I, I love podcasts. Uh, I love reading. Uh, 
I don't really have uh, preferences either. I'll read everything from like tween fantasy to, you know, biographies to, you know, normal fiction and novels. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, I just, I really think you can find inspiration anywhere. Um, I, God, I wish, I'm just trying to think of like what, I need to have a better recommendation. I've been studying. Oh, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, if you're someone like me who, who just listens to a lot of stuff too. It's hard to like pinpoint one thing. It's it's very hard for me to answer that question. Yeah, I was gonna say. Let me let me think on it, uh, and I, I might have to email you. You can sure. You know, we can add it on at the end. Yeah. No, that works perfect. Um, and then I guess this one I love. What you know, with someday when Halo Top International is in your past as well. What is what do you want to be remembered for? I think without a doubt, it's just going to come down to what my friends and family think about me. I don't actually, I, I could care less about anything else in this world. I don't care what anybody thinks about me, especially if you don't know me. Um, I used to, when I was in high school, I think I was probably, um, again, a, a, an ignorant, you know, 16 year old. I used to say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I think I've matured into, no, I, I care what my family and close friends think about me, but it stops there. So I think I, I just, you know, I hope, I hope on some, on some way, on some level, you know, you've had a positive impact on, on the people that matter in your lives. Love that. Love that, Doug. Um, last question. How can people follow you? Uh, how can people follow the brands that you're involved in, whether it's Halotop International, Gatsby, all that. And then how can people try the product? Yeah. Um, so uh, the Halotop International stuff, if you find yourself outside of the U.S. and Canada, uh, like I said, we're in a ton of markets. Uh Australia, Korea, China, uh, UK, Western Europe, uh, each of them have their own Instagram handles. It's usually at Halo Top UK kind of thing. Okay. Um, Gatsby is just at Gatsby Chocolate um, in the US. And you can visit our website, which is uh, gatsbychocolate.com. And again, we, as of January 1st, we'll have launched uh, a new website with a bunch of new products and uh, very excited for that. Fantastic. I'll add all those links to the show notes. so Everyone can check it out. Doug, it was a pleasure meeting you. A pleasure learning about your story. Thank you so much for the time. This was awesome. You as well. Thank you so much, Shane. I appreciate right. it. Thanks, Doug. See ya.